Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey, inspired to have this opportunity to introduce all of you to Laura DeBoer, who is an incredible role model for grief and rebirth. Laura is an author, a therapist, an educator, and a catalyst for transformational change for both healthcare individuals and institutions. Her wisdom comes from the fields of psychology, transpersonal development, and spiritual psychology. And most importantly, it comes from the inside out, from facing the darkest aspects of human experience and mining the dark for the treasures that can be found. Laura's early childhood was one of extreme vulnerability. She was born into poverty and violence. She was prostituted at the age of nine, and she suffered unspeakable treatment from those who should have protected her. The impact of this early trauma led to her institutionalization soon after she started college and an incarceration she would not have survived, but for a courageous nurse who fought for her release. 50 years later, Laura has had a long career as a successful mental health professional. She is recognized as a leading educator, and she is also a sought-after public speaker. I'm eager to talk with Laura about the inspiring theme of grief and rebirth in her life, some of the angels wearing human skin who helped her change the course of her life, the work she now does with traumatized individuals around the world, and her remarkable new three-category award-winning memoir titled Darkness Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace, which traces her life as a survivor of child abuse, sex trafficking, illegal pharmacological drug research, and institutional abuse. Having experienced such horrifying and dramatic events, how did Laura survive? And to what purpose? This is surely going to be an insightful and unforgettable interview with a truly remarkable woman. Hi, Laura. A warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. It's such a pleasure. I, I mean, you knocked me out. Your whole story is like just so amazing. I can't wait to share you with everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with asking you about this mandate. You had a spiritual mandate, which inspired you to write your award-winning book, Darkness Was My Candle. Do you want to talk to us first about that mandate? That's right. I, um, I literally was, I was writing a different book 
And through a number of circumstances, I heard that I was to write this book as an act of love. And I was to write it because what happened you heard to me, it, it just came into your head like a message. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and it was because what happened to me didn't just happen to me. It's happened to thousands of others. And it's part, my story is about a part of our collective shadow. And we're in a time in which everything which has been hidden is coming up to be looked at. And that's, that's around the globe. And so my story is not only about that, it's also about redemption and it's about grace and it's about being able to survive the unspeakable. Which you certainly did. And before we get into this childhood that you had, which set the stage for what you've been through, um, you've also had some near-death experiences that kind of resonate with this spiritual mandate. You want to briefly tell us a little bit about them? I had my my first, um, well, first of all, I had a number of suicide attempts throughout my childhood. I, I felt like I was born to an alien planet, and I couldn't understand why anyone could possibly want to live here. And I'll talk a little bit later about what, what, shift, what began to shift that for me. But, but that's not the same as a near-death experience. Um, I had a near-death experience that I actually have, had a premonition of when I was in France leading a pilgrimage many years ago. And, and it was profound. I could hear everything that was going on. I could see the monitor and could see that the closer I got through this, this tunnel of light, um, the more my sats went down the more my blood pressure went down. And then as I would step away from the light, it, the numbers would go up. And I played with it until I, I stepped too far over into the light and suddenly all the monitors went off and someone was ripping my gown off of me and starting just starting to do um, compressions. And then I had this moment of decision. I thought, no, it's not my time. I need to stay. And when I made that decision, Immediately, I heard the doctor say, "Stop! She's coming back." Wow! Wow! And they, stopped, they stopped the compressions. Now, how long ago was this near-death experience? This was probably about eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, old? Okay. About eighteen, nineteen years old, and then uh, you had no. Another- well, it was about eighteen, nineteen years ago. Years ago, and then you had another one. You've had others also. Yes, um, I had COVID. Um, in April, two years ago, and was in the hospital, was very sick. Wow. Um, And I remember the book wasn't out yet. And I remember thinking, if this book is meant to touch lives, it'll be released and someone else will, will deal with it. I don't have to. And I was so tired and so exhausted. And one night I got, and, I, and it was increasingly hard to, to breathe. And you were in the I, hospital. I was in the hospital for, for um, over a month. And then one night, um, a doctor came in and he said, we're going to have to consciously sedate you and move you to, um, um, to intensive care. I was in the step-down unit from intensive care because the oxygen is, is no longer working. And I shook my head no. And he said, well, then you're going to have to sign a DNR, do not resuscitate, do not wow. enter the order, which I, what I nod my head and I signed. 
And uh, that night I felt like I was hovering in a space between. And I, and I don't remember in that moment consciously deciding, but I, but I know that I did. And I also know that I, I didn't choose not to be intubated because I was giving up. I chose that as a way of letting go. So there was a way in which I was surrendering to, to the divine or to all that is. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I survived. And so then that I, night you came back? I mean, like you started getting yes. better without having to go into the ICU? Absolutely. Yes. You and I, I knew from out. that moment on I was a different person. When you felt that you were given these decisions or that you made these decisions, was anyone... Were there spirit guides or anyone around you were just conscious, just your consciousness was processing this? It was primarily my consciousness. And there was a lot of um, brilliant light that's, that, um, that's very compelling. It's very, it's, it's difficult to step back or step away from that light because you feel so at one with it and, and want to be there. And I, and, I, and I believe in the end, it was because I, my soul knew that I had more to do. Yeah, it brought you back. Wow. And, and, I, and I do have more to do. And you I certainly do. You certainly do. Um, so let's talk about, let's begin your story from the beginning. And let's talk about that ethereal, precious little girl you were. And this early childhood you had that was filled with so much vulnerability. So heartbreaking. Would you like to? Sure. Tell us about that. Um, I was born from a, um, an unwed mother who had had a very traumatic history herself. And I don't know for sure where my father is, but there was a period of time in which we lived with my uncle in northern Wisconsin. And my mother and he were living as husband and wife. And I called my uncle daddy. And I, when I was three, he had come this back. Her brother? This was her brother? Yes. Wow. And when I was, and he had come back from World War II, very traumatized and um, pretty deranged. He would have flashbacks regularly and pull his gun out and tell, tell us to duck because there were Japs all around the house and so on and so forth. And one, um, one Thanksgiving day, he shot himself in front of my mother and I. And my mother went berserk and he had been very jealous of me and wanted my mother to himself. And she just went crazy and she beat me and threw me upstairs in the crib. I was still in a crib, but the side rails were downed and I had just turned three. And there was a raging blizzard outside and she, um, <clears throat> she left the house. And my aunt, my mother's oldest sister came to the house later that day to find out why we hadn't shown up for Thanksgiving dinner and found his dead body on the kitchen floor and went halfway up the stairwell to um, call for my mother and just assume that she wasn't there. And they fought all the time. So I, I, my Aunt Ethel said later that she, at the time, believed my mother and he had fought and he, she had taken me and left. And so she called the sheriff and the coroner came and removed the body. And she said, I already checked upstairs. So nobody checked upstairs. So I was in the house for three days by myself. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And at one point I got out of the crib because I was so hungry 
And I have no idea how many days had passed at that point, whether it was one or two. And I went looking for food and for a grown up. And I was able to pull some some, um, bread off the table and sat on the floor and ate it. And then I went looking for someone and couldn't find anyone. And there was literally a, um, a blizzard roaring outside the windows. And I tried to get out the front door and um, a snow drift drifted in uh, and the snow was almost higher than me. So now I couldn't shut the door, nor could I, could I get out. And it's a good thing I couldn't get out. And I sat down and started crying and sucking my thumb and an ethereal presence came to me and told me um, that I needed to go back up the stairs on my bottom so that I wouldn't fall and get back into my bed and cover up and she would be watching over me. And I've never forgotten that presence. And I believe that it became the foundation of my life. Wow. Can you, can you describe what that presence, how that presence appeared to you or, or it was just like a sense? No, it appeared, it appeared to me. And I used to call her the, the luminous lady or the lady in gray. Cause it was kind of luminescent. Um, it wasn't a fully formed person. Um, but yet it was, you know, the, the shape of a person and, and it had a voice. Wow. Now, and, um, you also had a spiritual epiphany at the age of nine when your neighbor told you that you loved you, that she loved you. And was this before or after, uh, you were raped as a child also? My mother sold me to the first ma- man that she sold me to at age, um, at age nine. And an upstairs neighbor named Dale, who I knew only briefly after I'd fallen through a window and my mother had been gone for days and her husband cleaned it up and she had made cookies and brought me upstairs and gave me lunch and invited me to sleep on the couch and gave me a key that I still have that I call the just in case key. And I I never slept there. They only lived there for three or four more weeks, but she was always kind to me when she saw me. And the day I had to say goodbye to her because she was leaving, I was just devastated. And I fell apart and I, and I just started sobbing, saying, you can't leave me. I just found you. I don't know any nice adults. You, I just found you. You can't leave. And she pulled me into her arms and cradled me and was rubbing my back as I'm sobbing, as she's rocking and holding me. And she kept saying, you're a good girl and I love you. I'd take you with me if I could, but you're not mine, so I can't but I love you so much and you're so lovable. And she just kept talking to me. And as she talked, something came alive in me. I felt that love is a living thing. And I knew, I knew with every, every aspect of my being that the reason we're born is to learn how to receive and to give love and that it's all about love. The other thing that Dale told me is that I needed to learn to take better care of myself because my mother was too sick and couldn't care for me, which gave me the message that what was happening was not my fault. And she also made me promise that I would reach out to other people and let them help me and love me as she had. And what an important, oh my God, what a- And so I did, I did all those things. And many years later, I wrote a short story about Dale and was able to then refine her. It turned out she had a fourth grade education and she had been considered 
um, mentally de defective in school, so had not gone all the way through school, but she had this incredible wisdom and she'd never forgotten me. And shortly after I found her, she was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. And, and I got her to a doctor because she had no insurance. She was working as a poor cleaning woman. We never know anybody else's story. And uh, I got her to the doctor and then got her um, some assistance. And she was in and out of a particular hospital with palliative radiation. And I went to see her at one point and I started to weep and I said, Dale, I'm so sorry it took me so many years to find you. I'm gonna miss you so much and we've missed so many years. She reached across the table and patted my hand and she said, don't be sorry because you did find me and now I'm not afraid to die because I did one good thing in my life, just look at you. You're like a ripple that goes out. Oh my God, what a beautiful, and, beautiful thing. And then she asked me if she needed me when she was dying, if she, if she needed me when I was, when she was dying, would I come? And I said, of course I'd come. And one night I dreamt all night that she was calling me and I called her home the next morning and she wasn't there. And I called the hospital she'd been in and out of for palliative treatment. And the nurse said she was actively dying and she was terrified. And I said, tell her I heard her calling and I will be there as soon as I can could. And I was living in, um, <clears throat> pretty far away at that point, but I got the next plane and I flew to where she lived and I got there around noon and I got to sit with her until dawn when she finally passed, which was wow. such an amazing gift. Wow, what a blessing, what a blessing. It was an amazing gift. The, you know, the other thing that was foundational in my life that I wanna mention and, and the cover of my book um, makes me think of it. And this is the cover of, of the course, book. Absolutely. This is me at age seven. How beautiful. Look how beautiful. And at that age, I, I discovered music in churches. I wandered into the Catholic church one Saturday and the choir was rehearsing. And I knew that I had to get as close to the music as possible. And finally, I realized they were up in a choir loft and I went and sat in the stairwell and I knew that something greater than myself, that God was raining down on me. And I just went into the sense of awe and bliss. And after that, I discovered when the Lutherans did choir rehearsal and when the Methodists did choir rehearsal, and I would make my rounds all week long. Uh, my mother really um, couldn't stand the sight of me. And I, I ran wild. I was pretty feral um, in the way I was being raised, but that, created something for me. So I always had this sense of there being something more and something ethereal. I think the it foundation gave some structure. Yes. And it gave me structure. In a way. I mean, for me, um, not to go into it a lot, but everyone who's heard this podcast knows that I had also, I had this amazing spiritual awakening. And when I have been through things that sustains me also, I right. always, I always go back to the messages that I got and that I received. And I know that there's so much more and it gives, it, it, it provides such comfort. Right. You know, um, now as if this wasn't enough, you were also homeless during your senior year in high school. So, and again, you found an angel. Uh, you want to describe the amazing kindness of a doctor at the County hospital 
who created a bridge so that you could graduate and go to college. So here you're this feral kid, you're going to churches, you're doing your thing, but like wild upbringing. And now you're homeless while you're in college, I mean, in high school, wow. So tell us about that. So as I said before, I, my mother prostituted me for the first time at age nine and that continued till I was 13. And then I had a suicide attempt that was so serious, the court decided to take me away from her. And this was pre-child protection year. So I was in one placement after another and one after another failed, not because I was a bad kid or I did anything wrong. I was like a chameleon. I'd be anything anybody wanted me to be um, just so they'd keep me. But the last foster home had failed and the foster, the court worker decided she was going to send me back to my mother. And my, and I was a senior in high school at the time. And I, um, the first night I was there, my mother went out that night and then she came home with some man and the next note, and she lived in a small kitchenette apartment and I was in bed asleep. And the next thing, you know, I woke up and he was on top of me and he was raping me. She had sold him to me and she was sitting at the kitchen table watching it. And he had a billy club that had dropped on the floor outside of his pocket. I don't know if he was a bouncer in a bar or what, but I picked it up and he had passed out and I was going to bash his head in. And I knew if I started, I wouldn't stop. I'd kill my mother. So I threw it down and I grabbed my clothes and got dressed in the stairwell and walked around town all night. And in the morning, went to the drugstore and bought three bottles of Sominex and took them and climbed under the bushes in a, in a park. And later, apparently, a biker found me and called an ambulance. And I woke up many days later in the county hospital for basic needs, you know, making sure you're, you're, you have food, uh, etc. Um, and, and those basic needs met. And the highest level um, begins to open you up to transcendence. And I guess I would call that consciousness or awareness. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And um, so increasingly, as you go through these stages of development, there's more and more awareness and more and more a shift of consciousness. And we can do a whole lot of things, a whole lot of practices to help promote that and to help that shift happen. And there are some amazing spiritual teachers alive in the world today. So that's a little bit about what transpersonal development and spiritual psychology is. There's also a whole movement. You've probably heard of the the word um, emotional intelligence. Absolutely. I'm, I'm well, a, well I'm now there's books believer. written about, about spiritual intelligence, which is that also, which is talking about the same thing. It's all talking about the same thing. And it's about how we continue to evolve as human beings. Which is exactly what this podcast is about. Mm-hmm. It's totally to, to help people to, to become conscious yeah. and evolve and heal. And so, part, uh, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. Part, that's okay. Part of my, besides writing this book for those who never had a voice, part of why I wrote this book is to reveal the dark history of psychiatry. And um, a psychiatrist that I, um, who is actually the, the owner of the, um, the publishing company that published my book, 
he said to me he thought the book could become a form of truth and reconciliation for the psychiatric community, many of which don't know that dark history, and many of which don't understand how it continues to impact mental health in subtle ways today. Uh, you're, going to make, you're going to make such a difference in, in, on many levels, Laura. That's right. And one of the things you talk about is explaining how a traumatic event, from your own experience, you know this, how a traumatic event can create an opening to the opportunity to discover a more expanded version of a person, which is exactly what we're talking about, and how facing the darkest aspects of human experience can provide treasures that can transform a person from the inside out. So now we're talking about that, but is there anything you wanna to add to that as we're, as we're talking about that for people? It's my experience that we can choose, when we go through trauma, of course, for um, some of the hallmarks of post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and I, I don't like the word disorder because I think trauma happens when the nervous system is overwhelmed with too much and it can't handle it. And I think it's a brilliant system and it's not a disorder. It's something that's right with us, that saves us and often creates a sense of distance through dissociation so that the impact of the trauma in some ways is lessened. The pain is lessened, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You feel far away from it much like you do in a near-death experience. And so I don't like the word disorder, despite being a mental health. Right, and you've dealt with so many people person. like you who had right. all these dark aspects of their experience right. and made it through. Right. Exactly. And, and I believe that depending on how we choose to navigate the realm of trauma symptoms, can make a difference in terms of how we recover. And I believe that absolutely anyone can recover 100% as I have. I no longer have post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of my roles is I work with an organization called the Center for Mind-Body Medicine out of Washington, DC. And I've gone to places where angels fear to tread. I've gone to Gaza and I've gone to the other parts of the Middle East and to Haiti when they right after they had the worst earthquake there oh and down to Parkland after the shootings. And, and I have watched people move through their trauma like this when they have the right assistance. Sounds like your yeah. next trip should be to Ukraine. <laughs> actually, actually, I was asked to be part of the team in Ukraine. Dr. Gordon, the head of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, has been back and forth through Ukraine many times and has a team of people working with Ukrainians now. Well, that's wonderful. Because of the, I'm so glad I said that. That's, so that's right. But because of the, you know, the, the stuff related to the book and having moved recently, et cetera, I had to, to say, no, not now. Maybe I'll get on board later. But I'm so happy I, that people are helping them that right. way. I believe that trauma can literally create a portal in which we begin to open to more than who we are. And there are certain things that we have to practice while we're, while we're recovering from trauma. And some of those things have to do with self-compassion and self-love, unconditional self-love, which is one of the hardest things for someone who's been traumatized to do. Because what happens if you've been traumatized as a young child, because we're egocentric at that age, we take it in and we think every all of it's our fault. 
And then we have that belief system, which continues to hold us hostage and keep the perpetrator taking up bandwidth in our heart and our head. And that has to be healed. So unconditional self-love and self-compassion is absolutely essential. And as that begins to happen, there's this profound transformation that happens and we step into a bigger yes in our life. The other thing that I think that we need to be willing to do is shame is toxic. And trauma survivors often have a lot of a lot of shame. Oh, look what happens to you. Too. Look what happened to you. You internalize the shame. And I, I have come to realize that freedom is in my vulnerability. And being vulnerable is the great, I've never felt so free. Being completely transparent. And I have no shame. I have no more secrets. And I can't tell you how liberating that is. And, and I think that that's also essential for healing. And as we do those things, what happens, we let go of the false self that we've created to survive. And the soulful self becomes closer and closer and, be, and can begin with the right kind of techniques and meditations and assistance literally take up full residence. I mean, in so many ways, your whole story is about shifting, the, <clears throat> excuse me, shifting consciousness and transforming. It's amazing. Um, now you've transcended all these previous limitations and you're living a, what you call a luminous life. What would you like to share with us about your career as a successful mental health professional? And we've learned a little bit about that because you've traveled around the world, you're helping people and you now work with traumatized and you're talking a little bit about that too, with traumatized individuals around the world. Is there anything else you want to add to that? You know, I think I said it before, but it bears saying again, and that's that um, it's really important that you begin to care for yourself. You know, when we've been traumatized, we want someone else to rescue us. And, and it's wonderful to also have those who are willing to be way showers and mentors and coaches along the way but ultimately we have to rescue ourselves. You have to have enough self-love. I think your self-love, I think the, I, me personally, from hearing your story, I think one of the things that sustained you was this experience, these, the, these spiritual heads up yes. that you received yes. told you that there was something more. And also the fact that you were a seeker, that was part of your personality. So you kept, I can relate to that because I'm a seeker. And I right. went through a lot also, but I was always open to trying to help myself and trying to find out right. and understand. You know, the other thing that's, that's, that I have found working with others as well as myself that's enormously helpful is practicing gratitude and, and reaching out to others. We're in this period of time in which everything which is hidden is coming up to be looked at, as I said before. And there are so many people that are terrified and they don't know what to do, particularly our youth. And I, have, I know that just by being kind to somebody in the drive-thru at Starbucks, I've seen it and been told that I can change the course of a day. And it doesn't take a lot. And we feel good when we give. And what happens when we've been traumatized, we often become pretty egocentric for a period of time because we're so turned in on ourselves. But it can be useful to focus on others. Um, I, had a, I was working with a, a client many years ago at Prairie Care, where I still do some work. And um, she was so depressed. I can't even tell you. And I gave her the assignment 
even if it was one thing that she came up with that she was grateful for each day, she needed to do that and bring that to group. Before you know, it was like a snowball that was running down, rolling downhill and it built and built and she'd come in with 20, 25 things and share it in group and her depression went away because the way we talk to ourselves impacts our nervous system, impacts which hormones are going to be secreted, whether it's the feel-good hormones or whether it's the hormones that turn on fight, flight, or freeze. And the other thing is, um, it's really important for trauma survivors to understand how these amazing bodies of our work, of ours work and that we can get in the driver's seat. We know more about what's under the hood of our cars and pay better attention to the indicator lights on our cars that tell us to get an oil change or tell us to get um, more air in our tires than we pay attention to these bodies and we do it to our deficit. Because and, this is what we have till we're going till, till that last closing of the eyes and we have that's to get right. it's, that's this, right. is our, this is our vehicle. That's exactly, exactly. We are literally frequent energy frequency compressed and compressed and compressed into a physical vehicle for a period of time. It's all energy. And quantum physics makes that perfectly clear nowadays. And, you know, the, the other thing that I think is really important is to deeply work with the idea that what happened to us is what happened to us. It's not who we are. So many people become identified with what happened to them and become over-identified with a diagnosis and then they stay stuck. And the other part that bothers me, Laura, to be honest, is so many people who are victimized, sometimes they become like the person who victimized them. Yes. They take that they take that persona on or they take those yes. values on instead of seeking to heal what happened and move into their authentic selves. And I believe that's exactly what happened to my mother. I think that even when she watched other men that she gave me to, she watched them rape me. She would, she, I remember the very first time him raping me in front of her and looking at her face, literally staring at her face, at first crying and begging her to stop him, but looking at her face and seeing that she wasn't there. She was so dissociated and disconnected from her body. She was vacant. And later I had the insight the reenact that was like often trauma survivors reenact their trauma in some way. And it's often unconscious. And I think that's what my mother was doing. Wow. Wow. You know, um, um, let's talk other, about, go ahead. I'm sorry. One, go ahead. That's okay. One other quick thing is how we speak to ourselves makes a difference, a huge difference. So not only unearthing beliefs that no longer serve us, that imprison us, are really important, unearthing them, but then changing them. When my book was about to come out, I was freaking out a little bit. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm gonna feel so exposed because I hold nothing back. And I was looking at the word one day and Dr. Sue Mortar, who's one of my teachers, she talks about flipping the model. So flipping um, the model has to do with taking what's been unconscious and when it becomes conscious, then changing the language around it. And so what I, what I did is I looked at the word exposed and then I wrote, I said, I need a new word. And the word that came to me was reveal. 
And the sentence I created for myself is I choose to reveal myself as loving presence in every moment and every situation. Now feel the difference in the word exposed versus reveal. One is empowering and one is disempowering. And so by talking to myself from that empowering language, I can step into an interview and just be myself. And you're revealing, just revealing your truth. That's right. And because pornography was part of my history, I was terrified of video and, and cameras and all of that's fallen away just by how I've talked to myself. So that's another thing I, I, I strongly recommend that. that you know, do. I often tell people when I got that message to be loving and kind to everyone, when they pulled me out of my car, that meant me too. Yes, absolutely. And that changed my, that changed a lot of the way I moved through life also, because I, I realized it wasn't, I couldn't draw from myself to be loving and kind to others, unless I was also nurturing the well of who I was and being loving right. and kind to myself also. Yes. So you tell us about your retreats, your trainings, your workshops, your consultations, and do you have an offer for those who are listening to us today? Yes. Um, so I'm still doing some book tour stuff, but I am doing workshops. I'm actually doing a workshop tomorrow here in um, San Jose, California, an all-day workshop. And that's going to take t- people deeply into really exploring Um, the underside of trauma, as well as um, looking at love and what love has to do with it, and how we remove the barriers to self-love. And I'll be doing more and more workshops um, as time goes on that will be posted on my website. Uh, I just came back from Houston the week before last, and um, I'm going to be going back to Houston, doing some workshops down there and then some other parts of the country. So if people will go to my website, which is lauradevore.com and just sign up uh, on the website, then as retreats come out, I can let them know. And um, they'll now be they would physically have to travel to one of your retreats. It's not, not-, not necessarily. I will do some live retreats like the one tomorrow is live, but I'll, I'll definitely also do some, some Zoom ret- retreats. Okay. And what, is your, and, what, and what is your offer? You have an offer for? And the offer is anyone who has listened to this podcast is welcome um, to a discount for, for a retreat of their choice. So let's use the code word Irene, everyone. So Laura will know where you came from. Where you okay, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And I loved when I was um, learning about you that you describe what you call joy markers. Yes. And you have a tip for finding joy in in life. What would you tell us about that, Laura? Actually, many years ago, the spiritual teacher I had at a time was a a Native American elder named Dahani Oahu, who's a 27th generation lineage holder in the Sagali Cherokee Nation. And I was living on her land for a month and doing something called Women in Transformation. And we had to write this very thorough bio as an application. And one day, Dahani looked at me and she said, you have been through much trauma, but I want to hear about your joy markers. And she said, they're like pop beads that come apart. And I want you to start to gather them. So she asked me to do a timeline. And what joy markers are, is they're looking at those moments of joy from the time you were very young. And it might've got been getting your first bicycle or, you know, loving your kindergarten teacher 
or having a best friend that you never wanted to part with. Or meeting your kind neighbor. Or my kind neighbor, exactly. Or the third grade teacher Mm -hmm. uh, who was a substitute who helped me learn to read at the end of third grade after everyone had given up to me. Or um, a woman um, who was the cosmetic clerk at the local drugstore who took me to the library and taught me how to get a library card. All of those were joy markers. So some of the people who I call angels wearing skin in the face of compassion were all the joy markers I discovered because of Dahani suggesting that I do that. So I always suggest, and we'll do this tomorrow at the workshop we're doing, I always suggest that we, um, we do a timeline. And yes, we can write down here, you know, this was happening, this trauma, this trauma, this trauma, and up here, these were these small markers, because that's what kept us alive. And what happens is trauma takes over the brain, and we forget about the rest of that history. And we don't incorporate it. And it's so important to incorporate it, because it has so much gold. And it helps us to remember our joy, helps us to remember the kindness of others, and helps us to remember, oh my gosh, this is how I survived. And, and you have to find the reason why it's so important for people to heal. Absolutely. Because if they, if, they, if they don't heal their trauma or whatever has happened to them, they're never going to experience those joy markers. That's right. Exactly. And everyone came here for a purpose and has something to give, particularly in these times. And we have to shed that which no longer serves us and let go of it. And sometimes we do that on a daily basis. And sometimes it goes weeks or months where it's not there. It's an ongoing journey. And so we have to be kind to ourselves, no matter what's coming up and love into that aspect of us that might be freaking out at any given time. Doesn't do any good to beat ourselves up. No, there are enough people who are going to do it for us. And then we have to heal from what they did. So we have to be kind to ourselves, right? right? How do you know for sure that everyone comes here with a purpose? I believe that too, but how do you, how do you, how do you know that? I just believe it with all my, with my soul knows it. I guess that's the best answer I could give right yeah, now. The I shortest think so answer. Too, very often. Laura, in your remarkable memoir, Darkness Was My Candle, an odyssey of survival and grace, you share how your experiences illuminated and validated both the power of love and the strength of the indomitable human spirit that lives within each one of us. Thank you for the incredible role model you are. For those who have experienced deep trauma and illuminating that there is a way through the dark. And I thank you from my heart for this incredibly inspiring, unforgettable interview today. And here's a lovely reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe below so you'll never miss an episode. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings. And bye for now. Mm-hmm.